following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Let's bow our heads in prayer, please. We trust, Father, that our hearts are set in such a way that all that we say and all that we do in this place today might please you. Our hope is to please you. To bring honor and glory to your name. To give you majesty and Adoration, as the psalmist says, to ascribe unto you glory, do your name. That's our hope and our prayer. We pray too, Father, that your will might be accomplished in this place today. And we know that. You desire that none should perish. And so, Father, open our hearts to your truth. For those here today who are still trying to figure out who you are and what you've done for them, we pray, Lord, that it might become real today, this very moment. There are troubling events occurring around the world. Troubling for us, and we know certainly troubling for you. And so we we do lift up uh, those in Fort Lauderdale who's suffering from tragedy. suffering from the effects of evil. And we pray, Lord, that you might comfort those families today, be with the church down there in Florida, that they might minister properly to those who need your care. For um, other crises around the world, Lord, we lift um, them up to you. We pray for our military. Pray your protection for those who've committed a period of time to keep us safe. Pray for those first responders who take off and run toward the problem when it happens here in the United States and elsewhere. Ask, Lord, for safety, guidance in their lives. And in the middle of all that chaos around the world, Lord, we have missionaries who are serving you and you know their needs. We We thank you that we get a part to help meet their needs. We we pray for their protection. And some are worshiping in churches today 
that are secret. And, and so, Lord, just protect them. And give them boldness. Others, Lord, are building your church in safer places. And we pray the same, that you would give them boldness and bless their work. Thank you that we get, a, get to have a small part in, in their work. We have members of this congregation who are involved in mission endeavors, and we pray your blessings on them as well. Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for our, our president, for his wife and family, for as they... Um, vacate the office in a couple of weeks we ask Lord that you give them grace as they go through this it's uh, it's got to be hard struggle to leave and um, and so we, we we ask you Lord just to take care of them and their family through this transition Our vice president his family and we pray for our governor and her family Lord we as for safety as they prepare to make a change in their lives as well. Lord, we pray for all these transitions that they might be smooth uh, for the good of the country. We pray for those, Lord, who you've placed over us as well locally for our mayor and his family, our police chief, our fire chief, for just all those who see over us and ask you, Lord, to guide their lives and keep them safe. And all of these I've mentioned, Lord, draw them closer to yourself and do a work in their hearts. We pray for our membership. A good many in our membership are sick either with flu or some sort of bug that comes this time of year and we just pray for your healing power in their lives that you might uh, give them comfort be with those that take care of them we lift up our homebound as well you know their needs use us as a church to meet their needs some in nursing homes some are blessed to be able to be in their home just ask, Lord, that you would care for them this day and uh, take care of those who care for them. We pray for Pastor Greg as he continues his schoolwork this week and ask you to keep him safe as well. And we thank you for your word. Open our hearts to the truth of your word this day for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter 4. That's an ominous title, isn't it? This is the best I could do, sorry. And most of it, Peter says, the first part. Excuse me. Pastor Greg got us uh, started off in the new year 
2017 in fine fashion last week. If you missed that message, I encourage you uh, to go listen to it. (coughs) He spoke to us about Nehemiah building the wall and the various ways that Satan used Satan's strategy for stopping the building of that wall. Discouragement, disturbance, distraction, deception. And he'll not accomplish those things at Grace and the Ashley, but we must fight. Um, Satan's schemes for victory to bring down the church of Jesus Christ. His schemes to destroy what God's called us to become in this place. It was a great challenge for us. I encourage you to listen. The text we see today out of 1 Peter 4 and we'll look at today and next week. That's the title next week too. And also the text next week. It should also serve as a providential New Year message for the church. And so pay attention. Listen, the sermon today and next week may be awful. But the message in this text is worth your attention. So pay attention. Reading from um, uh, verse 7 of First uh, Peter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I'm back in December. December 11th was the last message out of First Peter. The two, two was a two-part message. Sorry, I can't get it all done in one message. On the first six verses, where Peter tells his the people he's writing to 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 accept the suffering that's coming your way. These are persecuted people. Commit yourself to the will of God, knowing that you will be victorious. And then. The next few verses, the ones I just read for you. In the midst of this suffering, this life that you're living right now, commit yourself to the will of God, knowing all along that the end of all things is near. This is um, the final part of this particular section, which actually began back in chapter 2, verse 11. That whole section goes from chapter 2, 11 through chapter 4, 11. And chapter 2, 11 and 12 
have some of the same themes of what I just read uh, to you. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh and wage that wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The end of all things is near. And then he begins that with this particular sake. Stay away from evil. Live a godly life. And when you do that, it results in glory to God. And that uh, verse, the end of verse 11, there... I didn't, even, I didn't even read that verse. Where did I stop? At 10? As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And then here's the big punctuation mark at the end of this section. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And he started, we know it's, it's, a, it's a particular section because he starts chapter 2, verse 11 with what? The word beloved. And then the next verse, chapter 4, verse 12, he starts beloved. It's a wonderful section we've had. We've, we've been able to go through. Throughout the New Testament we see here we saw it in the first part of this section. We see it when he mentioned the day of visitation we see it here at the beginning uh, of of verse 7 here. That the future is the basis for how Christians live their lives. What you believe about the future shapes how you live today. The end is near. Do this. What you believe about the future shapes how you live today. You know, I don't like to get too personal about family. They tell us when we go to school and take preaching not to get too personal in your preaching. Especially don't talk about your kids and embarrass them. So I'll talk about my wife. But this illustration fits, and it happened this week. Judy had just read me the Spurgeon devotion for the day or something like that. She'd, She'd also sent out an email to me and both the kids about what God was saying to her through a, was a Paul Tripp devotion or something. And I was telling her how grateful I was for her faithful witness to our kids. And quickly, without hesitation, tears in her eyes, she says, I have to because I don't know how much longer I have. As far as I know, she's not going anywhere. But what you believe about the future shapes how you live today. 
in the second verse of this chapter 4. He says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. As an impetus to live out our time in the flesh for the will of God, we should remember this one thing. The end of all things is near. Now, it's hard to know what Peter means in this initial statement, but we can make a few points about it. The end of all things is at hand. What in the world does, does he mean by that? Well, all things is important. In the Greek text, that's the first word in the Greek text. All things. The word for all things. So, sort of emphasizing that particular point. And even if the world chooses to ignore this gospel, even if the world chooses to consider that the gospel is irrelevant, everything will be judged in reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that judgment is near because the resurrection has already happened. Live in the light of the fact that the end of all things is near. And one of the points that's important for us to understand in that, if you go back to chapter 1, it's a good reminder for us, turn to chapter 1, just not to set our roots in the world. He's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Don't set your roots in this world. You're pilgrims. You're exiles. We're just passing through. You remember the message on that text. Our value, our self-worth is not rooted in the world We're rooted in the hope of eternity. Verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're rooted in that truth. Not in the world. We're just pilgrims. We're just passing through. So what does He mean by the end? Does he mean the end is imminent? Did Peter think that Jesus is coming any moment? It could be in the next hour, is he saying that? And I've heard people say that the writers of Scripture thought Jesus would return any moment. Well, it's been 2,000 years. He couldn't have meant that. If he actually meant that, <clears throat> that it was imminent, we'd have to say that the Holy Spirit and his inspiration got it wrong. We take a pretty high view of Scripture. We believe it's inerrant. So I don't think Peter's wrong. 
Besides, in Acts 1, verses 6 and 7, we read, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time, this is the disciples talking to Jesus, right at the beginning of Acts, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Peter was there. He was there in Acts 1. He heard Jesus say that. He wasn't supposed to know the time. Now, other people would say, another option, that he's just claiming that death is never far away, and so do this. The end of each of us is near. In some sense, life is a vapor. So the end of each of us, that's what Judy was talking about. The end of each of us is, is near. So here's what you do. And he's talking about himself. Uh, if, he's, if this is what he means, John 21:18, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus is talking to Peter. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Referring to the fact that Peter, in some way, told Nero or Nero's minions that he wanted to be executed, crucified upside down so as not to be identified with the way Jesus was crucified. And he's just, he's writing this sometimes 63, 64, 65. And he's about to be killed. It's probably a couple years down, two years down the road, close He's going to be crucified himself. Jesus predicted his death, but that hadn't happened yet. You didn't know when it's going to happen. Plus, that's not what the verse says. The verse says the end of all things. Not the end of you and you and you and me and Peter. The end of all things. Third option, and there may be many other options is all I can think of. While we might think of it as the end of the world, this word uh, telos or end means more than just time ends or a life ends. It doesn't mean that time is closed as we would think. It means that the goal for which history is, has been moving has arrived. The one thing that gives us meaning for this entire process has finally arrived, or at least is near. For us, it means the final stage in the process. And because of the resurrection, Peter's readers are living in the last stage of God's redemptive plan. And the goal of that plan is finally being realized. So what we call the last days. Scripture calls it throughout. Karen Jobes says, The consummation of the kingdom of God will involve the return of Christ and the end of history as we know it because those events are necessary for God to achieve his telos, end, the redemption of humanity. So the end that he's talking about is just the...
consummation of that final stage of that process of redemption that we're all going through. It's reflected um, in chapter 1, verse 20, in Peter's statement there. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. I don't think Peter's readers would have responded well if he says, the end of time, the end of all things is 2,000 years away. That would, there would be no impetus to live godly lives, would it? Hey, the end of all things... Well, not 2,000. It's already been 2,000. The end of all things is 2,374 years away. And you're thinking, well, I've got 374 years to get it right. With the end, we see the climax of human history that reveals the goal not only reveals the goal, reveals the purpose of all the events. Actually, the redemption plan from Adam to Christ. The end is near because the last days have begun. And since the end is near because the last days have begun, this calls for a radical, different way for you to live. In whatever time there is that's left, believers are to live with an intensified, an amplified sense of eternal values. There must be an urgency to our living out the Christian life, he's saying to his people. Last days, the end is near. When's that time? Acts 2, verses 16 through 18. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, Joel was talking about those last days somewhere down the road. And then in those last days, it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, this is Peter preaching his first sermon in Acts 2. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so Peter is saying, hey, Joel, like like 700 years ago, Joel said this about what is happening right now. Here in Acts 2, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Then your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So Joel, all these centuries ago, says, and in the last days it shall be. And those last days he's talking about, Peter says, we're experiencing them right now. These are the last days. He told us that back in Acts 2. Paul tells the Romans to wake up in Romans 13. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.31, The present form of this world is passing away. as a period of time. as the last days. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. 
And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. I don't see any Antichrists. So we're in the last days, but it isn't here yet. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Hebrews 9, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. We're in the end of the ages, but he appeared. So since Jesus, we're at the end of the ages. And then the next to the last verse in Revelation. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Turn to Second Peter. I don't know if I have these on the screen. Second Peter three, verse three. He's telling these same people, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. We talked about scoffing Wednesday night, looking at Psalm one. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Are mocking, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, Where, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Wouldn't we say that? Wow, it's been 2,000 years. What if he had told these people, write in this letter to these people in Bithynia and Cappadocia and all these places. I'm writing these people and, and I'm telling them, okay, in 2,000 years, 2,000, what I say, 374 years, Jesus is going to come. And those scoffers will say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And then skip down to verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. But why hasn't it come? It's been 2,000 years. Life continues. Why? Because to Jesus, it's only been two days. It's a long time. It's a long period of time to wait. But fortunately, we have the apostles who tell us over and over, what do you do during that period? Tells us how to deal with it during this period of time when the scoffers come. The persecution comes. But in Jesus' consideration, it's been two days, not 2,000 years. But he's coming. And one day there'll be a knock at the door. Are you ready? He says here, be self-controlled, sober-minded. Are you sober-minded about these things? But we keep a pretty... Our house is okay. You can come in. We keep a house 
pretty well. But what is acceptable to us might not necessarily be acceptable to you. So we dread it when that knock comes on the door. Do you? I know a pastor shouldn't be admitting this. And most of the time it's dinner time. And we were sitting there watching the man in the high castle, you know, and we got to turn it off. Someone rings the doorbell. We're not ready. Six o'clock at night. And the newspaper I threw on the floor at six o'clock in the morning is still there. And you knock on the door. Springtime flowers are budding and Christmas decorations. No, that's not happening. There's a knock at the door and we're not ready. Are you ready? He's coming. You're having an argument with your wife and you say things that you shouldn't say and there's a knock at the door. Right in the middle of it. You've drunk too much and you're out of control and you're at someone else's house and there's a knock at their door. Jesus has come. Are you ready? You just completed your income tax and you fudged a little bit on those figures. There's a knock at the door. You're looking at pornography on your computer, and there's a knock at the door. Jesus has come. Are you ready? Paul says, wake up. Peter says, the end is near. Do this. He said it because the readers of this letter, and you and myself as well, are living in the last stage of a process that is initiated by God. And the outcome of that process is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I read to you 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us, caused us to be born again to a living hope. What? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Chapter 3, verse 22. Through the resurrection, of, well, verse 21. Baptism, which responds to this corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to him. That's the guarantee. And because of this truth, their behavior should reflect this fact. The end of all things is the basis for at least four things Peter wants to tell the church. Four points of instruction. Describes the practice of Christian community as we live through these times. We 
with the end being near, how are we to live in community in this ever-increasing hostile world we live in? Four things. is think right so you can pray, love one another, show hospitality, and serve one another. He's saying nobody, the end of all things is near, nobody is going to escape this final redemptive process that will save some people and condemn others. So listen, this is how you should be living. Think right so you can pray, love one another, show hospitality, serve one another. Now let me take a little side road here. And this is just the introduction, by the way. The word community, I've already used it twice, I think. I'm going to use that word today and next week a lot, I think. I could use the word church like we always do. But community, I think when referring to the body of Christ, gives us a different sense of how our behavior affects each other. Because the rules of this, the, the rules of community for this world are well established. If you don't conform to the rules of community for the world, then you, you're rejected, uh, sometimes persecuted. Violence may come out of that, but God's building his own community. Chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. That's God's community. That's who Peter's talking about here. And he defines it by a set of principles. So I'm going to use that word in relation to this text. I think it's important on how we see the church, particularly in these areas. First, think right so you can pray. The end of all things is the hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Remember, the redemption story will not fail at touching every single person and every single thing on this planet. Peter wants his readers and he wants us to allow that truth to govern how we think and how we live. Rather, acting out of confusion and in the midst of chaos in regard to spiritual things. He's saying, be clear-minded about it. These two verbs are similar in meaning, and they probably intended to mean just one thing that he's saying, to make mental preparation, even as he did back in chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sober-minded, clear thinking. Think of a drunk who lacks self-control, who's staggering around, you know. 
Some of you know that experience from the days before you were saved. I do. He relates that to the mind. Don't think out of control about things. Consider with clear-mindedness that the end is near and, and there must be readiness in your life at any moment. If you're not self-controlled in your way of thinking, you're not going to be prepared. The four verse, chapter 4, verse 3. For the time that has passed suffices for what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. That's, what, that, that, that's, that's not sober thinking. That's drunk thinking. That's what they were. Now do it this way. Self-controlled, sober-minded, sophroneo. The word sober there. To be in your right mind, to exercise self-control. So he's calling his readers to live soberly. Sobriety of judgment. In light of eternity, believers must live out their lives in a responsible way, in a moderate way. Balance is necessary so that they can pray. Sober-mindedness benefits our prayers. The word there in the Greek is plural. It's prayers. It's a, it's a lifestyle. It's ongoing. It's that daily, ongoing prayer life. But I do find it interesting, of all the things he could have said, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of evangelism. Be sober-minded so that for the sake of your learning or for the sake of your giving or planning or organizing, for the sake of your preaching the gospel. Be sober-minded for the sake of your worship. Be sober-minded for the sake of your fellowship. What, what if he's, Peter's teaching a class. Okay, I'm going to start this out, and you just tell, you throw out what, it, what, what we think ought to be priority number one. Be sober-minded for the sake of... Worship, yes. Somebody say worship, okay. Evangelism, yes. Somebody preaching the gospel, yes. Somebody say preaching the gospel. Somebody in the back says prayer. Priority number one. As far as the Christian community is concerned, right thinking about the last days, the future, will result in prayers. You might even think he would tell this crowd that he's writing to. Clear-mindedness is important so that you can prepare a defense for the gospel that's being attacked. Our clear-mindedness is important for you to have in your life here during the end times as you face persecution. 
And you'll know how to stand firm. No. His first concern is prayer. The knowledge that his readers are living in a final stage of God's redemptive plan should encourage an enthusiastic prayer life. Not complacency. Peter knew how important this was. Remember Jesus talking to him in the Garden of Gethsemane? Mark chapter 14. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch an hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to answer him. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Then you go down to verse 66 of that same chapter. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out in the gateway and the rooster crowed. Peter knew what he was talking about here. Be sober-minded, clear-minded for the sake of your prayers. He could have gone on and said, so that you won't fall into temptation, as Jesus said to him. The first resource to living out the victory we have in Christ in our Christian community is our prayer life. And living that out is easier said than done. Prayer is hard. Back in chapter 3, he tells husbands, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Be considerate to your wives. Showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's priority number one. And I don't believe living in these last days, we realize how important prayer is we say we do we talk about prayer a lot we say prayer helps us we say we feel the prayers of others but the church of prayer is weak individual prayer lives are weak my perspective after 45 years in ministry is that that is the primary area of failure in Christendom today. 
And as a result, we are powerless. You know, your wife or your son or a parent maybe in the hospital. <clears throat> they might even be on life support. And you will pray, won't you? Your prayer life will crank up and something like that happens and you'll ask every single, you'll ask unbelievers to pray for you. My child is on life support. Please pray. Friends, I love you very much, but the church is on life support and we're not praying. Now, if you're visiting, you want to give them a run right now? This guy is saying that this church is on life support. What's wrong with this body? Well, it's not just grace on the Ashley. It's the church. Period. We're on life support and nobody's praying. Oh, we have our lifeline. We pray for the sick people. Seldom do we get to the deeper issues we need to pray for. We pray for our church leaders. Thank you, because they're on the list. We're seldom on our knees pleading to God to just, God, just wipe us out if we're not going to reach this community for you. God, if you can't use grace on the Ashley to reach this community, just get rid of us. Somebody else will come in. Use them. God, if we just want to be one big happy family studying the Bible together and listening to Bible sermons and not making any difference when we leave this building Monday through Saturday, just get rid of us and put your people here. God, if that baptistry is going to stay dry for another six months, just get rid of us. Use somebody else. There are plenty of believers out there. Build something else here, God. Or other than getting rid of us, God, just do something better in us. And it better be radical. Playing this game is getting old. And why is prayer so hard? Why is it such a struggle? Satan hates prayer. The devil hates prayer. We could go back. We really don't have time, do we? I'm not taking a vote. Sorry, that's a rhetorical question, I guess. I wouldn't. We could go back to the armor of God in Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. How do you wrestle if you don't wrestle against flesh and blood? Well, you better use prayer, right? What else you got? Put on the armor. So Paul tells us, that you put on all this armor. Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. All these 
circumstance, take up the shield of faith and extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And what's his next word? The very next phrase, praying at all times in the spirit. Put on the armor of God and he says, pray. Acts 6. Remember that story? The apostles go to the church, the congregation, and say, Hey, listen, we we got too much going on. I could give you a personal testimony about that. We've got... We've got too much going on in our lives. There are problems that need to be dealt with. But you need to take care of them because there are two things that are our priority. What? Prayer and ministry of the Word. Two things those early apostles felt were their priority. God had called them to. Only two things. One of them was prayer. And we don't know what we're missing out on because we're so comfortable as it is. Listen to me. If we close the doors today, we get up and we leave, we sing a hymn, we all hug each other and, and smile and leave. And we close the doors. And we close the doors for good today. Would our community notice? Other than not having a facility to have their meetings in. Would Charleston notice if we closed the doors today? Pray, brothers and sisters. You can't wait till you feel like it either. You've got to make a commitment to it. And it's hard. If you wait till you feel like it, you won't pray. You, you were walking around saying, oh, I feel like a praying here on I-26. Well, pray. It's the primary expression of your relationship to the Father. And it's the foundation of the church. Pray, brothers and sisters. Pray. Let's pray. We do thank you, Father, for calling us to be your church. May we be your church as you designed in this place. More importantly, may we be your church when we're not in here. Convict us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Convict us for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.